Welcome back to another episode of Better Together, a podcast about how the health system and healthcare workers in Australia can better engage and understand their patients, aiming to improve patient experience and the overall quality of our healthcare system. As part of the global health consumer movement, we're here to ask important questions about health, how healthcare workers can put the experience of the individual patient front and centre, and how all health consumers can get more actively involved in their own health care. We're recording our podcast here at Nepean Hospital, which operates on the traditional lands of the Darug, Gundangara and Wiradjuri peoples. I'm your host, Dominic Santangelo. I'm a health communication specialist, health advocate and carer for two children living with rare disease. And I'm here with my co-host, Matt Roger. G'day, Dom. How are you going? Good, Matt. So I've been living with the challenges of multiple sclerosis for 19 years. Um, and I'm an active consumer representative um, across the Nepean Blue Mountains LHD as well. Fantastic. And today we're privileged to be joined by a guest who's an eminent urologist, surgeon and healthcare innovator, as well as a best-selling author, playwright, and importantly for our program at least, a passionate advocate for patient-centred and patient-led change in healthcare. Professor Mohamed Kadra is Professor of Surgery at the University of Sydney, Director of Surgery and Director of Strategy and Innovation at Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District and the Co-Chair of the Nepean Telehealth Technology Centre. As a celebrated author, his books include Making the Cut, The Patient, Terminal Decline and Honour Duty Courage, rather, all published by Random House. And he's also co-authored a play with David Williamson entitled At What Cost, which was performed, I believe, at the Ensemble Theatre in Sydney. Was it 2011? No? About that, yeah. Uh, Professor Mohammed Kadra was appointed Officer of the Order of Australia in 2017. Mohammed, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, hi, Matt. Nice yes. to see you again. And yes, likewise. I should mention that we all have met before, so we do know one another. So, oh, okay. <laughs> just in case our listener sort of detects, um, you know, moments of of, of intimacy. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Dom, Matt, thank you very much for having me on the show. Fantastic, Mohammed. Without giving away your age, I think it's respectful to say that you've been a surgeon for a long time. What has changed over the course of your career in relation to how doctors, and I guess from your perspective, surgeons, see their patients? Look, I think um, the idea of patient-centred care um, is certainly something that has been around since, uh, you know, the dawn of medicine and more importantly, perhaps brought to the fore by people like Florence Nightingale and the Crimean Wars, um, where she set up administrative processes that really looked after patients and reduced the um, uh, the uh, death rate, etc., from injuries. Um, but more recently, I think there's much more uh, realisation that patient autonomy is, is really the centre of um, how we should be looking at um, healthcare generally. And so in conjunction with a patient, coming up with a plan of action, a plan of um, treatment that suits the patient because there's no black and white in, in medicine generally. There are always options and those options have to really be assessed by the patient in language that the patient can understand. Um, we are really good at using wonderful Latin-derived um, <laughs> medical terms, and um, that is part of the mystique of <laughs> doctors. But 
Um, you know, to tell you the truth, every time I have a plumber because something's blocked at home, they use words that I don't understand. And yeah. when I take my car in for service, they use words I don't understand. Um, so it is part of any profession to have a jargon that is associated with it. But I think what's what's changed is obviously universities now put a huge emphasis on um, communication um, strategies, communication teaching, um, and the involvement of patients, even at the curricular level um, in medical schools, and certainly our medical school, the University of Sydney, um, of which Nepean is a is one of their clinical schools, um, places a huge emphasis on communication skills. Hmm. Yeah, I just might segue there and talk about those sort of professional languages that can sometimes, you know, hinder the patient from having perhaps, you know, full autonomy or at least an appropriate level of autonomy over their own care. I know that, you know, in other contexts, and it's been discussed in medicine too, you know, social theorists and philosophers since the 1960s have been talking about how those sort of that jargon or that professional language actually um, serves a gatekeeping role or maintains a, a, a power structure or a power hierarchy. Do you think that happens in medicine or do you think it's something we still need to overcome or is it something that since the you know consumer movement has, has gained more ground, we, we, we have overcome to some extent? How far do you think we've come along? Look, I think we've come a long way. Um, I think uh, um, surgeons are very aware of their responsibilities and making sure that a patient understands um, the treatment process that they're uh, undertaking. Whether or not they're able to translate the medical jargon into words that patients um, can take in and make valid decisions is sometimes difficult. And the other um, important thing is there are patients and patients, just as our doctors and doctors, we're all human beings and we're all individual. So there are patients who will come into my practice and say, Doc, I don't want to know anything about this. You're the expert. You tell me what to do. And that places an enormous responsibility on the doctor because mm. there isn't a patient, uh, there isn't a treatment, I'm sorry, from taking a Panadol all the way to major heart surgery or brain surgery that A, doesn't have options and B, doesn't have negative side effects. And needing the patient to actually partner with the doctor is vital. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other side of the scale, are patients who come in with um, 6,000 pages that printed off Google and try and teach me as a doctor how to treat them. And that is great when they've really understood the area and it makes it a sort of a peer-to-peer -peer conversation, really. Um, but it's it's not really what you've come to see the doctor for. You've come mm. to see them for an expert opinion based on years of experience of seeing patients. So it's a partnership where, where both people recognise what, what the other brings to the table. And as you know, I think you've alluded to the fact that, you know, while attitudes and cultures within medicine may need to change and have been changing, there's also attitudes and cultures that the health consumer or the patient is responsible for coming into the room but that potentially um, need to be thought about as well. I think that's true. I, I think it... Um, you know, nothing's more educational, and I don't wish this on anyone, but but when the doctor becomes the patient, there is a complete understanding of what it's like on the other side of the desk. I was, I was actually going to ask you about, about that, Drew, on, on your own health challenges. 
how did that change your attitudes and beliefs when you're on the other side of the desk? All of a sudden, you weren't the clinician, you were the patient. Hmm. Look, it's, it's, being a patient is a very difficult thing, Matt. Um, having any form of um, disability or uh, illness or facing your own mortality is... is um, I mean, I remember in my case, I, I've had two um, significant health scares, but um, uh, the first one was my, my youngest was one year old and um, uh, his brother, my oldest, was two years old. So we had two young children. And one morning I woke up and I couldn't do up the top button of my shirt. And my wife, who's um, a doctor, um, said, what's wrong? And I said, look, I think I've got a lump in my neck. And I said, stand behind me and do a thyroid examination, which we learned how to do in medical school. And she said, oh, gee, you've got a, a big lump in your neck. Um, and it, you know, later that day, I was doing a clinic um, at the hospital and I got one of the radiographers just to run a probe over my neck and it had spread everywhere. And, um, and uh, I had to have two lots of surgery and, and radiotherapy and all sorts of things. <clears throat> and it's interesting sitting, you know, in a bed where um, a couple of weeks earlier, I had resuscitated somebody who'd had a cardiac arrest, but now I was actually the patient in that bed. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I remember the, the food they brought, the, um, the way that the nurses and doctors just came in to sort of do a ward round. And you thought, now I really want to know more about where I am and where I, my treatment's up to. Mm-hmm. And that information, maybe it was said, but I didn't understand it. I yes. didn't hear it even because my anxiety levels were so high. So how did you strike that balance in between uh, a surgeon's objectivity mm-hmm. versus an empathy for being the patient? Yeah, and how, how does that change your, the, the role in your mind? Look, I, I wrote in, um, I think it was making the cut, that um, being a surgeon especially, and I think generally for medicos um, all over, but surgery is a specific little uh, niche of medicine where you're really causing bodily harm to a patient. You're taking a knife and, you know, uh, doing things that really in the ordinary course of events are weird. Um, you're you know, playing with their organs, you're um, moving things about, you're taking things out, putting them back together. And at that moment when you are in theatres, for you to be an effective surgeon, you really need to regard what's on the table, not as a human being. You need to regard it as a car you're fixing, as some mechanical object that your job is to apply the highest level of technical expertise you have to effect the change you want to bring or cure the disease you want to do. A moment later, when the patient is now waking up, all of a sudden you've got to be a human being again. And that dichotomy of thinking, you've almost got to have two sections of your brain. One is, I'm now in surgeon mode. I've got to just get on and do what I'm expected. Because if you start to think at that moment about the children they have at home and the fact that if you don't do your job well, they won't see them grown up. Mm -hmm. If you think about the multitude of um, 
of pain that their wife has expressed to you about the fact that her husband, who's the breadwinner, you know, is facing a life challenge. And if you think of all of those things at that moment, I think your effectiveness as a technician mm. decreases. Yeah, I, and I imagine surely that there's a time for that as well, you know, because I reflect on it, I guess, through my sort of experience in the healthcare system, not as an employee, as a healthcare worker, yeah. albeit in, you know, in a somewhat peripheral role, but also as a carer for two children who unfortunately um, suffer a very rare and serious illness. And there is a point where as a carer, and I imagine as a patient too, that you do require your, your doctor to share part of that burden with you. And you, of course, you know, as you, as you say, the most practical um, but, uh, spot for that is probably not while you're at the operating table. Yeah. But where do you find, because obviously you've talked about how, you know, the idea of compassionate care um, sort of not came to you, but um, became a more important part of your whole approach following your own um, experiences yeah. as, a, as a patient. Where do you fit that compassion in? Where do you put that other side of you? Well, I think compassion is is a natural um, characteristic of all of us. So if you see children playing in a playground and somebody falls over, other kids will help them up. Um, they, they feel sorry for others and try and do what they can to elevate it. So it's innate in humanity is compassion. Maybe there are psychopaths and um, others that perhaps it's been jumbled up and is no longer something they express. Um, but compassion is a natural part of all of us. Now, how we express compassion is different in different people in different contexts. So there are surgical colleagues of mine and doctors who feel that the most compassionate thing they can do is to provide the best care possible. And um, talking and uh, holding your hand and all of that is not actually helping me cure your disease. Yes. You know, what I need to do is get in there and do the operation to the best of my ability. And that's one approach mm. to compassion. It's not that they're not compassionate. It's that they express compassion in different ways. Yeah, and um, matching up how a doctor and how a patient want to have compassion expressed is often, and that's why I say to patients, there are, there are doctors that are for you and doctors that aren't for you. Mm. And knowing, you know, having a relationship with your doctor where there is trust and uh, there is a sense of, um, I, I understand what you're saying and I know that you have my best interest at heart. As a clinician then, Mohammed, what are the lessons that you've learned over the years in both health practice and management type roles, and that could include through the, the COVID period, about consumer engagement itself? And what do you think some of the key lessons that still remain? Look, I, what I don't like when I see it, and thankfully it's becoming less and less common, is tokenistic consumer engagement. So, um, you know, somebody uh, starts a committee that's determining various things and they think, oh God, we'd better have a consumer on the committee. And or we'll go out and ask a few patients in the waiting room, what do you think? Shall we do this? And I think that 
patients need to be an integral part of healthcare planning because this system is about them. And we've got to, in a sense, um, uh, take that voice and strengthen it. There's no question, Mm -hmm. no question at all. Now, that doesn't mean that what I'm advocating is you've got to walk into the doctor's office and say, this is what I want done. I've read this great procedure or recently I've put in my symptoms into chat GPT and it tells me specifically what operation I need. So are you the person to do that operation? That's not what we want. What we want is a partner. And what we want is to make sure that the health system we construct really meets its central aim, which is caring, providing the best care possible Mm. for uh, patients um, of, well, this LHD um, Mm. is our remit, but uh, generally. I'll tell you a little anecdote. I have a a friend who um, was a CEO of quite a large organization and his contract finished. And the general manager's position came up at one of the major hospitals. I won't say which one. And he, I said to him, you should apply for that because you, you'd, have, you'd be great, mm-hmm. you know. And so he went and really studied it for about a month and then came back and we had a cup of coffee and he said, I, I decided not to apply for that job. And I said, why is that? Like, it's a great job, very prestigious, you know, you'd He said, you know, in any organization I'm involved in, in the corporate world, there is unity of purpose. And in that hospital, there is no unity of purpose. And what that means is it's not an organization whose sole aim should be directed at the patient and providing the best care possible. There are, you know, unions that are doing their own thing and you know, I'm a supporter of unions, um, always been uh, part of that movement, but nevertheless, there is a different aim. The nurses have a different aim. The doctors have various aims. Um, the junior doctors have different aims. They're trying to get, you know, rise up the organization, etc. And there isn't an overriding, there is in New South Wales Health, and we have one too, this mission statement, but it isn't part of the consciousness Mm -hmm. of Mm -hmm. everyone that Mm -hmm. works there, including the cleaner and the and the person that works in the kitchen and everyone else. I think in such a large organisation that is so complex, it's very difficult to have what you call a unity of purpose or a sort of strong sort of unified corporate culture because, it, you know, by its nature it is so complex. And as you've mentioned, there's different doctors, there's different patients, and there's so many sort of individual experiences c- coming to this environment that, that make it incredibly challenging. Um Hey, Matt, could you maybe just, you know, I remember Mohammed was just mentioning about uh, those forums where, 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 where together you reflect on some of these challenges. I just thought maybe we could hear a little bit about those experiences from your perspective in working with, with people like Professor Mohammed Kadra and, and other senior clinicians and, and healthcare managers to, to help achieve at least some sort of approach to change. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm probably involved in about 12 or 13 different committees um, across the, the LHD. And some of those are just at, at, 
individual uh, clinical service levels, and others are much more strategic levels, you know, boards, subcommittee levels. And I, I, I certainly get the impression uh, from the involvement that I have that, to your point, Mohammed, it's not just a ticker box exercise because National Standard 2 says you must partner with the consumers. There is a real interest I, I get in, in lived experience. It's not something you can read in a textbook. Um, I, as I said, I live with the challenges of, of MS, and everybody in the hospital could have MS today, and they'd all be different in terms of their presentations. So there's not one size that fits all. And that is where consumers being actively engaged in the hospital framework can help shape the direction that it takes. And I've seen that through the redevelopment at, here at Nepean, uh, amongst other communities as well, where you start being asked questions. If we did this, how would that impact on you as a consumer? If we did that, what would this change for you? If I think about the ultimate care message, it's we want culturally safe care that's high quality and is uncompromised at every stage through the healthcare journey. Now, whether you've come in for an acute presentation, you've broken your arm, it's plastered, you go home and you come back in six weeks to get your plaster off, versus a chronic condition where you're going to have a multidisciplinary team. That's what I get the benefit out of, and that's why I'm so passionate about being involved in the LHD, to really help share that experience. And, and I get a very great sense of personal satisfaction in having those conversations. In a clinician to, to patient level, it's a completely different to I've gone to see for a, a particular clinical appointment. And I think, you know, if this podcast is going out, Don, to lots of people, then, uh, you know, this is a call out for them to really come forward and be involved and um, uh, when there are opportunities advertised uh, EOIs for example which I think they often appear as uh, please put your name forward um, to be an advocate for the patient the central reason why mm. well, we well thanks for adding that Mohammed because that's definitely one of the intentions of the podcast is to you know demonstrate a little bit about the the the, the power that um, health advocacy from consumer representatives can have mm. um, and hopefully get people excited about the opportunities. So yeah. most definitely. I, I know in my case, through my involvement as a consumer rep in the PM Blue Mountains LHD, that's opened up opportunities to get involved as a consumer representative at broader New South health levels as well, particularly around the virtual care space, which is obviously a, a great development for, for healthcare in, in New South Wales and, and more broadly in the country. One of the key things that guides any work we do is really um, how is it that it improves people's lives? Um, what legacy does it leave? So recently I've been involved in a major project in New South Wales Health, which um, has come to a, a conclusion. And I chaired a committee on, um, uh, with others obviously, on um, uh, low value care. And what we do know is there are a number of um, procedures which once upon a time were thought as being fantastic for patients uh, but which now we realize really make no difference. So for example somebody who has a hernia and that hernia is not really causing much pain, uh, it's not entrapping uh, bowel, it's doing nothing. Um, there's a tendency, well there's a hernia we should fix it but the reality is that there's no 
benefit in doing that. And so we call that low value care. Now, obviously, there are um, there are other um, procedures and there are always clinical issues that might be different in one person to another uh, that determine that this needs to be done. So we've just looked at the uh, research from across the world and come up with a number of these procedures that seem to be um, not necessary. For example, just because you have a gallstone doesn't mean you need to have a gallbladder out. Um, lots of people live with a gallstone and they don't need the surgery. Uh, and there are a large number of other procedures. So uh, to, I've taken that through um, to the to the stage where it's now policy, and we've got a policy document um, that guides all of New South Wales in yeah. terms of how to do that. And I know you're quite passionate about sort of um, the risks of unnecessary interventions, and you've Very written about so. that, and, and yeah. that's also the content of one of your books, and and, and to some extent the play that you co-wrote with David Rooms. Correct. I think uh, those conversations, and I think you know another challenge that. Um, sits in front of us is, of course, the um, legislation that has recently been passed about um, assisted dying in the final stages of one's life. Um, A lot of us over the years have thought, um, whether you support euthanasia or don't support euthanasia, this concept of futile care, where almost the patient becomes a guinea pig for new treatments and new technologies simply um, without much hope of that becoming something that will change their life. And I think doctors and patients um, getting better at those conversations where we just say, what we need is to alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. And if that suffering is alleviated by curing disease, great. If that suffering is alleviated by not actually intervening, but allowing pain uh, Mm -hmm. control and palliative care, then we have to be better at that. And to be honest, that's the stuff I was thinking about when I was talking about cultures of, of medicine and I guess those unintended con- consequences of something where, say, the Hippocratic Oath is almost inverted through interpretation where it's not about alleviating suffering but it's doing absolutely everything possible, whereas that actually may be causing more suffering for the patient. Mm-hmm. And to get back to our point, if the patient is more involved in those conversations and empowered to, to be able to make more decisions and to be a genuine partner in, in, those, in those medical uh, sort of processes, um, then th- those sorts of things are less mm-hmm. likely to happen, I imagine. Okay. I certainly remember asking you, Mohammed, about a, a particular procedure and if I have it this way, what's the implications for me? You know, as I was, I think, 40 or something at the time. Yes. Is this procedure something that a 40-year-old bloke would get versus an 80-year-old bloke would get? Um, but I think one of the challenges, and I'm conscious of time, but I'm, I'm thinking about the level of health literacy in general mm. um, and particularly for disadvantaged groups that would include you know, culturally and linguistically diverse, um, ATSI, elderly, people with disability, how can we as consumers work better with you clinicians to improve health literacy? Look, um, I have a video out on YouTube and we we're just looking at it um, upstairs about prostate resection and it's had 4 million views. Um, I, I haven't received a cent for that, by the way, but I don't know how, uh, how that happens. But um, fundamentally, I think um, health literacy is everywhere, isn't it? Uh, you know, it used to be, look, we want the doctor to explain things, but now there are, you know, maybe f- 
10,000 YouTube videos on every single condition out there and different ways of solving it. For me, the problem for the consumer now is not that there's no information, but there's so much of it. How do you sort that out and prioritize it and work out the nuances and subtlety that says that this procedure is great for patient X, but is not good for patient Y, who ostensibly seems to have the same things wrong with them. Mm -hmm. Why did my friend have these and I can't have that? And really, it does come down to um, those subtleties and things that takes years as a specialist to get. Mm -hmm. um, but increasingly, this stuff is coming at us, isn't it? It's coming at us from every direction. Um, the, the point, I think, is how do you use it? How do you actually um, best use it as consumer? If I was to give, and I give this advice to doctors who are patients as well, is see if you can try and learn some of the words that have to do with your disease. Mm. So that when you're having a conversation with a, with a specialist, with a doctor, with a professional, with a nurse, that the words they use are familiar. Mm. Um, now, obviously, we tell them, please, you know, use the best words possible and use layman's language, etc. But there are things that can't be Yes, at some point, you, you need, it's a, it's, it's a compli complicated and very niche issue. And it you is. need to use specific language around it. One of the things that I, I know that we've gone over time, but one of the things I've, I've found as a health consumer, I guess, um, is that there's not a there's not an emphasis on that generally on on helping the consumer to inform themselves um, of the knowledge that's required to understand their illness. And most people, regardless of how good their health literacy is, I regard myself as somebody who has, has very high health literacy yeah. in that I work for health, I'm an educated person, I have an interest um, and I've got um, two sick kids who have a rare condition and I've had to learn very quickly. But the amount of work I've had to do and I've reflected on if somebody was in a very different um, position to me socioeconomically or culturally or linguistically, they simply wouldn't be able to do it. And the health outcomes for their children would, would be worse. Yeah. So I do wonder what we can do to improve health literacy and to engage the system to see it as a priority. Um, well, generally, I, I think generally health literacy and computer literacy, because you have the wherewithal to find the information when you want it. There are people who, whose computer literacy, and that's become the determinant. You know, 50 years ago, it used to be your, your purse determined whether you got good care or not. Now, it doesn't matter how much money you have, you can come along to Nepean Hospital and get some of the best care in the in the country. Fantastic. Look, uh, you, we, we probably should finish up, but is there anything that you want to add, Mohammed, that we haven't covered or is there... Look, um... I, I, I think it's important to thank Matt for the work he does. Um, you know, the, the sense he brings to decision-making and the contribution he's making cannot be underestimated. And, you know, uh, on behalf of myself, but certainly on the uh, health system that will look after me when I age, I, I think it's important to say thank you, Matt. Thanks, Matt. I really appreciate those, those sentiments. Thank you. thank you for joining us today, Matt. Both of you, thank you very much for having me. Yeah. It's been a pleasure to be That's here. It's been awesome. Thanks. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Better Together with myself, Dominic Santangelo, Matt Roger, and our guest today, Mohamed Kadra. 
Please tune in again for more episodes on topics from consumer engagement in mental health, the importance of multicultural approaches to consumer involvement, and much, much more. If you're interested in getting involved, please drop us a line at bettertogetherconsumerpodcast at gmail.com. The Better Together Podcast is a consumer-driven initiative with help from staff across the Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District. Catch you next time.